You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Let's read what the teacher has to say beginning in verse 4. He writes, And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful for your presence this morning. I'm so thankful for this church. My brothers, my sisters here. I'm thankful that you died for us. I'm thankful that you love us in spite of our sin. I'm thankful that you're singing over us. I'm thankful that Jesus, you rose from the dead. I'm thankful that you provide all our needs. I'm thankful that you are so tender and gentle and kind. Let us just breathe your presence this morning. Amen. I think it is safe to say that as Christians we are, or we can, easily acknowledge in our, maybe in our own life or in the lives of others, these uh, obvious sins. Or as John Piper taught, calls them, spectacular sins. Now, things, you, you can think of things like things you would all give a hearty amen to that's wrong. Whether it's murder or theft or lying or cheating, drunkenness, adultery. All these things we can acknowledge are sinful, and we're quick. Um, eh, I don't want to say quick. We know that if we commit these things, they're wrong. Or the conviction or the spirit is like, we feel like we're more sensitive or more keen or more aware of the sin that those are. Uh, even to the point to where you and I can even place guardrails in our life that would prevent us from falling into those sins. So for example, I have covenant eyes on my phone as my web browser. And that's there to keep me from looking at webs- inappropriate websites, whether it's pornography or just a video I shouldn't see. And if, it, if I were to attempt to view a website that is, would be deemed inappropriate, it emails some guys, and my wife. So I try to put guardrails in place to keep me from viewing things I shouldn't. Or let's say you have, like, let's, let's say you've had a problem with, uh, with alcohol or drunkenness, drunkenness in your past. And so you may just abstain from alcohol altogether. Or, you know, whatever the guardrail may be that you can put in place to keep you from committing those sins, to live a holy, a sanctified life. We can easily identify those. But I think 
what is even more dangerous, not to say those aren't dangerous because those have devastating effects, but what can be so subtle and so dangerous are the sins that go unchecked that we don't easily identify. Jerry Bridges, in 2007, wrote a book where he called these sins respectable sins. And he defines those as the acceptable sins of the saints. Those sins that we tolerate in our lives but are serious in God's eyes. In other words, they're sins that you and I, believers, followers of Jesus, we don't really deal with. We allow We let them go unchecked, but yet at the same time are equally destructive and equally an offense to God. I think our teacher here in Ecclesiastes 4 is getting at one of those this morning. When in verse 4, I read it again, and I saw all the toil and all the achievement spring from one person's envy of another. Envy. One of those respectable sins. And even in that book, Respectable Sins, Jerry Bridges gave us a chapter on envy. When you think of envy, what comes to mind? What kind of person do you think is an envious person? What kind of things do they envy? I think we can, is it, you think of someone that's jealous all the time, you know, kind of a intolerance for the good or the advantage of someone else. You think of someone that may be uh, just filled with covetousness, you know, you want the very thing, the very advantage that someone else may have. Or maybe you think this spirit of over competitiveness where they're always wanting to be on top, always wanting to win. I think we can define it, and I think all those right there are in the same family of envy. And I think we can define envy. I've got a, a few things, a few ways to define it. One, we can say envy that is the resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. Or we could say the awareness of and displeasure with the good, the advantages, or the successes of other people. Or lastly, we could say that envy is the sinful desire to get ahead in life by getting ahead of other people. You see, envy is all throughout Scripture. It's got an ugly history. You can trace envy all the way back to the very first crime ever committed in human history. So let's go back to Genesis 4 and 5. You have Cain and Abel. They are Adam and Eve's two sons. And they bring an offering to the Lord. And we know from Hebrews 11 that Abel brings his out of faith. Cain does not bring his in faith. And therefore, God says that Abel... Uh, that, that God received Abel's offering and rejected Cain's offering. And this infuriated Cain to the point where he was envious of the pleasure that God was giving Cain, uh, Abel over the displeasure that he was receiving. And what does it do? Well, first off, God confronts Cain and says, hey, bro, 
Sin is at your door. It's crouching right by you. And it's going to overtake you. You better get it in check. Well, it very well could have been the sin of envy that was in Cain's heart that God could have been referencing. Because Cain does not get it in check. And he eventually murders his brother. You see the story of Joseph. Joseph was the youngest of 12 brothers. Was it 12? Yeah, I think so. Uh, And right or wrong, we could probably preach another sermon around this point. He was his daddy's favorite. For whatever reason, Joseph was loved more by his dad than the other brothers. And that infuriated his brothers. And they envied him. To the point where we're going to get rid of him. We're sick of this. We want the favor that he's getting. So let's devise this plan to kill him. Thank goodness his brother Benjamin steps in and says, let's not kill him. Let's throw him in this pit. We'll sell him for slavery. Let's make it look like he got killed by an animal. All over their desire to want the favor that their brother was getting. Last example I give you is King Saul. King Saul is the first king in Israel. Great king, warrior king, was a a strong man, had favor with the people. But now David has been anointed as, hey, this is going to be the new king. And Saul does not like that. And we know some of the stories from David. You know, he kills Goliath. He's a warrior. He's... Uh, and, and what you slowly see is the people of Israel start turning their favor away from Saul, pointing it to David, even before he's king. And there's this one passage of scripture that the people of Israel are singing this song saying, Saul has killed the thousands, but David the ten thousands. And Saul's heart is enraged with envy toward the adoration that David is getting. And it leads him to hunt down David to try for the attempts to kill him. So envy has an ugly history in the Bible. And we could share more examples. But I think what I want to argue here for just a moment is that envy's grip on the human heart in Scripture is strong. I want to argue that the grip of envy on our hearts right now is even stronger, is even tighter. It has not loosened its grip on your heart and on my heart over the course of time. It has ratcheted down its strength around our hearts. The Guardian, an article from The Guardian says that we live in an age of envy. Human beings have always felt what Aristotle defined in the 4th century B.C. as pain at the sight of of another's good fortune. So I do believe envy holds a greater grip on our heart right now than it did years ago. And I don't think any one of us are immune to it. And I think there are a couple of catalysts recently that have helped tighten its grip on our heart. One... In culture, we can see the advent of social media. Scrolling through Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter. Ethan Cross is a professor at the University of Michigan. He studies the effects of social media on human, on people. 
And uh, through his studies over the years, he observed this. Envy is being taken to an extreme. We are constantly bombarded by Photoshop lives that exerts a toil on us, the likes of which we have never experienced in the history of our species. So this is a guy who is not necessarily a follower of Jesus, who says, hey, envy is worse now than it's ever been. Rachel Andrews is a clinical psychologist, and she's been observing that more and more people are coming to her counseling for envy. Or through the course of counseling, she's noticing that envy is a common thread that's rising from people. And she says this, that they, they, they envy because they can't achieve the lifestyle they want, but which they see others have. Our use of platforms, including Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat, she says, amplifies this deeply disturbing psychological discord. I think what social media has done is make everyone accessible for comparison, she explains. In the past, people might have just envied their neighbors. But now we can compare ourselves with everyone across the world. I think another catalyst for a heightened envy, for a stronger grip of envy on our hearts, mental health experts are calling it quarantine envy. Theconversation.com, just a real quick quote, said many people, mental health experts note, have been sizing up the extent at which they've been affected by lockdowns and economic hardship. Viewing who still has a job. Who gets to work from home? Whose home is spacious, light-filled, and Instagram-worthy? And guys, if we're honest with ourselves, we're doing this. And we're flipping through our phones. And we're seeing all the things that, the, uh, that other people have. And envy rises in our hearts. And this desire to have what they have, the desire to feel that we deserve what they have, creeps up. Think about all the things we begin to envy. We envy wealth. And possessions. You see people that's got more than us, and we want what they have. We think we deserve what they have. We envy things like looks and beauty. We envy marriages. Man, I wish my marriage was more like that. I wish my husband would get it together. I wish my wife would get it together. Parenting. I mean, we all have seen the, uh, Instagram reels of people making these awesome lunches for their kids at school that's nutritious and healthy. And we just sent our kids out with a nacho lunchable and a pop tart. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and we're thinking, golly, man. <laughs> we envy kid, other people's kids that seem so well behaved. How in the world at 645, they're standing on their front porch and they got those kids smiling for a picture. Hashtag homecoming week. I mean, I, my kid fusses just to brush her hair. <laughs> we envy careers. Hey, this is to give you a personal example. Just that it just happened the other week. I was... Uh, being interviewed for a promotion in our job, and there were 11 other candidates. No, 10 other candidates. There was 11 candidates total. So I knew I had less than a 10% shot of getting it. Well, I didn't get it. 
I'm processing it okay. Take a deep breath. But I found myself, I knew of one other person that I work with that I thought had applied for it and was being interviewed as well. I wasn't 100% sure, but I, was, I, was, I felt pretty confident, still feel pretty confident that they at least applied for it and were interviewed. And my heart began to say, I'm way more qualified than that person. They're not the ones that have led teams. They're not the ones that are, that are giving the presentations and talk at our national sales conference. They're not the ones. Who have they mentored in our company? Look, I don't even know this person even applied for it, really. You know? And I'm envying something that may not even be a reality. Even if she applied for it, she still got less than 10% of the job uh, to get the job. And I'm envying her over having a job that she doesn't even have yet. Or maybe will not even get. I said that cleanly. There was no in-house of in being there. <laughs> we envy things like community status and social status, popularity, envious of other people's talents. Musicians envy other musicians. I promise you, I look at Chris Rose playing, and I'm like, man. I listen to Adam sing. I wish I had a voice like his. I mean, this is things that I envy. Pastors envy other pastors. Church sizes, church budgets, the way they teach, the way they preach. Siblings envy other siblings. It never fails. Never fails. When one of my children has a birthday, one of the others is about to have a whole day full of jealousy. Never fails. And then my six-year-old has gotten, so my two youngest are six and 18 months. And boy, it's really showed up in her. Uh, <laughs> she can be upstairs. So my 18-year-old has got the greatest laugh. And I'll tickle her and she just loves to laugh. And then she'll grab my hand and bring it to her neck to, for me to tickle her some more. And my six-year-old can be upstairs in her room playing. And boy, the one minute Cora starts laughing. Here she comes, buddy. <laughs> and I mean, it's Eva. She's saying, Daddy, tickle me now. Tickle me now. It's tickle time, isn't it, Daddy? I mean, like we're six years old and this is already showing in her life. How much more is it creeping up in our life as adults? We envy life circumstances. Hey, and here's what's crazy. We don't envy people that we consider that are out of our league, so to speak. I'm going to watch football today. And I'm not going to envy any quarterback on that field. Because I know I don't have any kind of skill like that. Never will. I'm not going to watch basketball and envy LeBron James. I'm not going to watch baseball and envy the batter at the plate. I don't envy President Biden. I don't envy the CEO of our company. They are out of my league, they are a place that I do not even want to be. I'm not even striving for where they're at. Who do, who do I envy? The people in my circle, the people I most identify with, the people who I think I am better than. Those are the people I find myself envying. Not the ones who are at a place in life that I'll never get to, nor do I want to be at. 
And you know what's crazy? No one sees envy. I can be totally envious of all of you in here, and y'all would never know it. You can hide it. And we only know it, we only know it when, we're, when each other are envy is when we admit it, when we, in a, when we admit our weakness and we say, bro, I was envious of you in this moment. And what's even more sad is that some of the fruits of envy that tend to come up are viewed by culture as positive things. So if we go back and we look at verse 4, the teacher's talking about the hard work and the striving being motivated. So when envy over these things starts showing itself, we view that as a hard work. Man, they're hard workers. They get after it. Or man, they're, they're really competitive. Man, it's great to have someone so competitive on our team like that. Or they're a view, viewed as, man, they're really achieving great things. And as an Enneagram type three, this speaks so loudly to me. Because, look, I, I will apologize for anyone that's married to an Enneagram type three. We want to be on top. We want to be number one. We want to be the best. And the reality is what I've learned about my motivations, we're not coming from a healthy place. We're coming from an envious heart. And we've got to realize, like, even though envy can be so hidden and all almost appear good <laughs> at times, I think it was Christopher Hitchens who said, um, who was kind of one of the four horsemen of atheism, he talked about envy as the catalyst that explodes a capitalistic society. And so he was all for people being envious. He, he, his thoughts were, man, this is what makes the world so great. But we got to realize, like, this is something we've got to deal with. Even though we can't see it in one another, we got to deal with this. And here's a couple of reasons why. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes your bones rot. Jesus said in Matthew, uh, excuse me, Mark 7, that envy comes out of the heart and it's what defiles you. Paul would write in Galatians 5, he's in a list that is contrasting the fruits of the flesh with the fruits of the spirit. So you know the fruits of the spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He contrasts that in a previous verse and he lists envy as one of the fruits of the flesh. Romans one Romans one twenty eight, Paul says that the unrighteous are full of envy. And lastly, First Corinthians thirteen four says love does not envy. Envy and love are diametrically opposed to one another. You cannot love and cannot be envious in the, at the same time, according to Paul. So to summarize. Why, what some, some, the realities about what envy is doing to us. It's coming from our heart. It's defiling us. It's unloving. It's not of the flesh, not of the spirit. It's a work of the flesh. 
It's causing you to rot from the inside out. And quite frankly, if I could just really label what envy is, why we need to wrestle with this and deal with this, it's because it's sin. (laughs) It's flat out sin. It's an assault on the character and goodness of God. And we cannot let it go unchecked in our life. Envy tells us this story about ourselves. It's It's lying to us. Envy is telling a story of deep dissatisfaction in, one, who you are, in, two, who others are, and in, three, ultimately, a deep dissatisfaction in, ultimately, who God is. Or a deep unrest in who we are. Or a deep unrest in other people. Or a deep unrest, ultimately, in God. It tells us that there's a deep unrest within ourselves. And so we feel like we have to prove ourselves. We feel like there's something that we have to do that we, it's not really meant for us, so to speak. Give you an example. Every Wednesday from 12 to 1, we have team sermon prep. And uh, anyone's invited, lunch is provided. Um, In that this past Wednesday, we had a lady share how envy, how, how this has played out in her life. She scrolls through social media, and she sees the families that are out doing everything with their kids, going places with their kids, fun mom, fun mom, this and this. And how envy uh, begins to rise in her heart, she says, is because she has been uniquely created and beautifully created as an introvert. And her husband's an introvert, and her whole family are introverts. And so when she sees these, uh, when she sees the uh, picture scrolling of these families that are just going, the extroverted families that are just going and doing and doing, envy gets to well in her heart, and she wonders what she's doing wrong. She wonders if she, if she has to be more like that to prove that she's a good mom, to prove that she's a good spouse. So envy is telling her this lie that she has to be something she's not created in order to prove her value to others and to herself. Envy also reveals a dissatisfaction with other people. I've worked hard my whole life. I need to be there, not them. I deserve that, not them. Man, they only have that because their daddy left it to them. They didn't work for that. These are the kind of things, at least I'm saying. How in the world are they able to afford to do that? Remember those examples in the Old Testament of how envy viewed their brothers? I mean, it led them to resentment. That ultimately led them to harm. You see, envy causes us to see our neighbor, our brothers, our sisters, those around us as rivals. Not as God's people. Not as his sons and his daughters. Not as your brother and your sister. Envy causes you to see the people around you, your brothers, your sisters, your co-workers, the people in your family as competitors to the spot that you think you deserve. 
rather than seeing them as co-laborers bearing the image of the beauty of God. And envy also lastly shows us a deep dissatisfaction or a deep unrest in God. Or rather, put it another way, envy reveals unbelief. Unbelief in who God has said he, was, he is. It is as if when we find ourselves being envious of others, it is as if we are saying, God, you do not know what's best for me. But I do. And what they have is what's best for me. The spot they are in is what's best for me. God, you don't know what I need. I know what I need. And I need everything they've got. That's what's best for me. Envy says, the unbelief that envy is giving us is painting a picture that God cannot bring you the joy, the satisfaction, the wholeness He can't be enough for you, and you have to have fill in the blank in order to achieve those things. So envy needs to be dealt with in our life, needs to be addressed, let me say it that way, because it is ultimately an affront of sin against God, revealing unbelief in our life. It is a sin against your brothers and sisters because even though it's, it, it can be done in secret, you're still viewing them with resent and not loving them. And it is a, uh, needs to be dealt with because it is a dissatisfaction of our own selves and who God has created us to be. So what do we do with all that? Because if you're like me, look, I've been reading through this and rereading it and rereading it and rereading it. And I see so many areas in my own heart where, golly, it is, it's not been motivated by healthy, helpful desires, but rather envious desires. So what do I need to do with it? I think the teacher here gives two, re- two things that we can do, two reactions that we can have. So he says that all the toil and achievement, the double-fisted hard work, getting after it all, comes from a place of envying one another. So one response we could give is verse 5, which says, Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. That is to say, you could not do anything. You could complain about what others have and gripe about what you don't have and not do anything. Which, from the story of God, we know that that is not healthy. <laughs> the, the teacher here says it ruins yourself. But also, if, even if we go back to the Garden of Eden, work is a good thing. Hard work is a good thing. God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, says work the garden, take care of everything I've put in here. And it wasn't until, that, that happened long before sin entered the world. So work's a good thing. So I hope every person in here wants to work hard, wants to achieve, wants to be successful. Those are good desires to have. There's nothing wrong with aspirations for wanting to be the best version of yourself that you can be for wanting to provide the best possible life for your loved ones. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But the teacher tells us there is a balance in how it's done. The best way to live life under the sun, according to the teacher, 
is better is a handful with tranquility than two handfuls of toil. So the best posture, the best lifestyle for you and I is yes, work hard. Yes, do great things with this hand, keeping this hand open. To live a tranquil, or in other words, restful, peaceful, contented, satisfied, joy-filled, composed life. Yes, work hard. Yes, rest hard. Work hard, open-handed with this hand. Work hard, pull in with this hand, open hand, push out with this hand. That's the posture the teacher is telling us is the way to live. You see, our joy, our satisfaction is not ultimately found in the, in the envious possessions of others, in the envious lifestyle of others. Our joy and our satisfaction is not, our tranquil lives are not found in what we have or what we can get, but it's found in who we have as brothers and sisters of God our Father. The only person to have ever lived every single moment of their life without one ounce of envy towards anyone was our Savior Jesus. The only person who ever fully lived open handed, tranquil life and a hard working life was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ swung a hammer, building furniture. Worked hard. And then when he stepped on the scene for his ministry, he didn't stop working hard. All the same while, living the most tranquil life. A perfectly restful life. And then at the right time in history, the religious teachers, motivated from a place of envy, Nailed the only man who had never experienced envy on a cross. The religious leaders of the day were envious of the words that Jesus said, of the miracles that he had performed, of the attention that he was getting, giving, being given. And they nailed him to a cross for it. So the only person who ever experienced no envy was nailed because of our envy. The only man to have ever lived to never have an ounce of envy was hung on a cross for every ounce of our envy. And three days later, he gets out of that grave to declare to us that one day there will be an end to every single one of our envious thoughts. And we'll never experience them again. And we will find all the joy and all the satisfaction that our hearts long for when we get to see Jesus face to face. And then he, it also says, and then 40 days later, he ascends to heaven and he 
sends his spirit into our hearts so that now you and I can live day-to-day lives finding complete joy and satisfaction in Jesus. Feeling the freedom of forgiveness he gives. Feeling the freedom of the conviction that the Spirit brings when we are envious. Because I'm going to go out there today, and at some point today, I'm probably going to be envious. If not today, it'll be quickly in the morning. And I would imagine you are too. And so I can now, because of the promises of Jesus, rest in the complete forgiveness of my envious thoughts. And quite frankly, I now have the power to say no to envious thoughts. I now can squash them through the Spirit's help and His strength. Oh, man. That's good stuff. And Jesus invites us all to experience that life. Jesus invites all of us to go work hard and be in complete rest in Him. He says, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. His invitation in an envious life is to come to him and find a tranquil life. One that's satisfied not in what others have, but in who we have. So I invite the band to come forward. And as they're coming up, let me just ask you a few questions to just kind of think through. You, let's close our eyes to minimize it. Not just because there's something magical about closing our eyes, but it'll just help us focus a little bit. Let me just ask a few questions. Just dialogue with the Father in your heart. Is your life filled with envy like mine? You find yourself striving so hard after the wind, as the the teacher says. Do you find yourself exhausted trying to keep up with the Joneses? Or keep up, you know, with just anyone around you? Do you find yourself burned completely out? Financially, emotionally, physically, spiritually, relationally, because you want to be where others are. Jesus' invitation this morning is to come to Him. And when you come to Him and you bring all your envy, you will not get crossed arms. Oh, you will not get a nodding head or a wagging of the finger at, your, at you. But you will receive from him open arms. And you will receive a gentle and lowly Savior. Who is not shaming you. Who is not guilting you. Or condemning you but is embracing you. But is wrapping his arms around you. I feel as if he's literally whispering. I know. I know. I know I was tempted. I know exactly what it's like. I was tempted to do it as well. 
didn't do it and I didn't do it and I did it for you. 